Let us turn in the Word of God, friends, to the Book of Romans, the sixth chapter. I'm going to read from verse 1 through to 11. So you have Romans 6 before you. I'm going to start at verse 1. Read through to verse 11. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he gives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So reads uh, God's precious word. Well, friends, in recent weeks we have been looking at and turning our attention to the two ordinances that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to the church, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. Now, the idea is to look at what they are not and what they are. And last week we considered baptism from a Presbyterian perspective. There was so much to get the head around. I'm sure many of you went out with your head spinning. Uh, but you know, let me remind you, because we're Brother Roger said, you know, keep it, keep it simple, Billy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you, you did get the simplified version. So you did. Um, you got the condensed version. And if any of you would like to take the uh, advanced course, uh, John and myself uh, will certainly point you to the various systematic theologies and works that will help you in that endeavor. But a followed question was raised last week in conversation. You know, why bother with other positions? You know, why not just do what you've always done and deal with the subject of baptism as it's simply set forth positively from the pages of Scripture? Well, certainly a good question. Well, we can't ignore differences of an approach, can we? And we can't... You know, nor the fact that there are people who do denominations that do things differently from ourselves. And I have no doubt that many of you, if not all of you, have asked, if not openly, you've asked it to yourselves. Why do they do it this way? And they do it that way. After all, they're, they're all Christians. And, you know, why, why, all, the, why all the differences? And what we find is that there is a whole 
dimension of understanding in relationship to this subject and indeed the subject of the Lord's Supper that's actually missing. So we do need to be taught. Remember, again, the little illustration that he used in the teaching of our children. If we do not distinguish uh, between a horse and a cow, you will discover that that little toddler in the back will be calling, in the back of the car, will be calling everything on four legs uh, a horse, even if it's a cow or a sheep or a goat. And so in teaching on the ordinances, I am seeking not simply to say positively what we understand the Bible to say, but also to identify in a, in a negative way the issues that fall outside of the orb and instruction of Holy Scripture. So having looked at the Presbyterian perspective on baptism, we come now this morning to the Anglican or Episcopalian position, and then we'll look at the Roman Catholic position and conclude with a look at what the Bible says. Now, um, I don't think any of your heads will be spinning uh, this week because the Anglican position, Roman Catholic position, are much easier to deal with. There's no theological gymnastics uh, when you come to looking at their position. And perhaps the biggest issue with the Anglican position is that it's so broad. It's so broad that it incorporates almost everything uh, from what would pass as non-conformist to uh, up to the high Anglican that is only a whisker away, if you could call it that, from Roman Catholicism itself. And in between those two positions is everything you know, thrown into the mix in between. So let's start with a, a quote from someone that we would uh, respect in large measure. We wouldn't agree with all that he said or applaud every position that he took. But on the whole, he was widely respected within evangelicalism, uh, Dr. Jim Packer. Speaking, in, speaking of baptism in concise theology, a guide to historic Christian beliefs, he says, quote, The outward sign does not automatically or magically convey the inward blessing that it signifies. And just like the first two quotes from Donald MacLeod last week, we would certainly say amen to that. My Packer goes on to say the candidate's profession of faith are not always genuine. And again, we would have to believe that as well. You know, we don't baptize people upon assurance of salvation. We baptize people upon their profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They said, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They said, I have repented of my sin and I am trusting Christ. And I want to follow Christ in his baptism. And we take people at their word. And what we know of their profession of faith as it's set forth before us. If it's credible, uh, we say, fine, uh, we are happy to baptize you. But time will tell whether or not the profession of faith was genuine. Remember Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8 he got baptized, and he was a complete charlatan, wasn't he? You know, did it invalidate his baptism? Interestingly, 
Jim Packer says no. Listen to this, and, and here's something for discussion over a cup of tea afterwards around the meal table uh, this afternoon. This is what Packer says, quote, As a sign of a once-for-all event, baptism should be administered to a person only once. Baptism is real and valid if water and the triune name are used, even if the profession turns out to have been false. Simon Magus received baptism once, and if he came to faith later, it would have been incorrect to baptize him again. I say that's something for you to discuss over a cup of tea or over a meal later. Uh, but again, like you know, just like the Presbyterian perspective we looked at last week, there is a logic to uh, Packer's position. The question is, as we raised last week, the question is, always is, does the logic emerge from a clear and straightforward understanding of the unfolding instruction of the Bible? Because you always have to come back to the word of God. Now, it gets more complicated when you move from Dr. Packer's ability to articulate baptism to the prayer book itself. But as I say, Anglicanism is as wide as the Atlantic Ocean. Pacific Ocean's wider, isn't it? It's as wide as the Pacific Ocean, like. Um, and so, uh, listen to the, this is what the Anglican prayer book says. The minister prays in the context of the baptism of the infant, the sprinkling of the infant. And this is what he prays. Almighty, ever-living God, whose most dearly beloved Son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins, did, did shed out of his most precious side both water and blood, and give commandment to his disciples that they should go forth and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Regard, we beseech thee, the supplicants of thy congregation. Listen to this. Sanctify this water to the mystical washing away of sin. And grant that this child, now to be baptized therein, may receive the fullness of thy grace and ever remain in the number of thy faithful and elect children through Jesus Christ our Lord. The minister then goes on to say, we receive this child into the congregation of Christ's flock and do sign him or her with the sign of the cross. And then he prays, we yield thee hearty thanks, most merciful Father, that it hath pleased thee to regenerate this infant with thy Holy Spirit to receive him for thine own child by adoption and to incorporate him into the Holy Church. And so we humbly beseech thee that he might become what you have made him or her to be in this 
act of baptism. Now, see, having read that, see if any one of you are saying amen to any of that. I want to have a good chat with you afterwards. Okay? And I'm serious about it. If you're saying amen to any of that, we need to have a serious chat. Now, I hope that you will recognize that the Anglican position is different from the Presbyterian position. And certainly for all of the theological error in the Anglican position, at least they are trying to deal with the the notion that somehow or other uh, in baptism what is signified is actually sealed to the infant. Whereas the Presbyterian view that we looked at last week, they would say that the, there is no seal, but it's simply a sign to the, to the infant, a sign of the fact that the child is included within the covenant family. So essentially, uh, what you have within the Anglican position is baptismal regeneration. Like, no matter how strenuously, many of them would say, no, that is not so. Some of them would be saying, you know, we don't use the prayer book when it comes to our, you know, sprinkling infants. And so that is not the case. That's only the top end of Anglicanism. You know, see if you're in fellowship with a communion that is teaching baptismal regeneration. You need to reassess your link with that communion in the light of what the Bible teaches. Now, before we get in too deep and your heads do start spinning, what is the the teaching of the Roman Catholic uh, Church when it comes to this matter of baptism? Well, as with, you know, two weeks ago when we looked at the Lord's Supper, let me just simply quote from uh, the horse's mouth. Let me just quote from the Roman Catholic Catechism. Question. What is baptism? Answer. Baptism is the sacrament by which we are reborn to God, cleansed from original sin and personal sin, and made a member of the church. Why, how difficult is that? That's not difficult at all. There's no theological gymnastics there. You know, that is straightforward. A two-year-old could understand that position. Now, as with the, or look at the Presbyterian uh, position, let's not misrepresent, misrepresent Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism understands that it is necessary to be born again. Roman Catholics believe You must be born again. Ask a Roman Catholic, you believe you have to be born again? They will answer yes. The question is, the question is how? For Roman Catholics, a transformation that is signified in the new birth is tied in their theology directly to the sacrament of baptism. So, If you say to a Roman Catholic, you must be born again, they agree. Yes, I must be born again. And if they hear a preacher saying, you must, 
be born again. They will indeed agree with that statement. But they will process the statement in their mind by answering, but of course I am born again. I was born again when I was baptized. So that call by the preacher, you must be born again, does not apply to me. And so they think they are born again because the catechism told them that baptism makes you born again. It's a sacrament of baptism through that, that you are born again. Therefore, they've been cleansed of their sin. They've been, they been made a member of the church. So they sit and listen to the preaching. And uh, not only here, but also, I guess, in similar places. And they say to themselves, you know, preachers talking about being born again, and that's, that's very interesting. But it simply doesn't apply to me. And the reason it doesn't apply to me is because to whoever that, to whoever that preacher is speaking or to whoever they are preaching, they mustn't have received the same package that I received. And so the preacher is saying to them, the ones in the congregation who haven't received what I've received, he's saying to them that they have to be born again. And at the end of the day, does it really matter? Does it really matter that I've been born again my way? And they're born again their way? We all need to be born again. We agree with that. You know, so why are you getting head up under the collar? Everything is cool. We need to be born again. Okay. It's cool. It's cool if it were not for the fact that we are dealing with the eternal destiny of men and women here. It would be cool if it were not for the fact that we're dealing with heaven and hell here. If in baptism, the matter of salvation is secured, then Mike and Claire, you just get back to Rome. You know, you return directly to that system if, you know, baptism settled the matter of salvation. And if not, friends, let us join Mike and Claire in their prayer for those still within that system, blinded by it. You've talked to Mike and Claire since they, they came here. You'll know their great desire, their passion to see Roman Catholics truly born again. Priests, truly born again. Their, their heart, you know, for their family members. And, and, you know, their heart should be our heart. It should go out to folk who are still within that system. And duped by it. Now, that's why you know, Mike and Claire, they want to talk with family and friends. They want to write to priests. They want to send those booklets to them. And beloved, don't give up. You know, keep doing it. Don't be thinking it's a waste. Christ saves once for all.
And he saves once for all from our sins. And we show that in baptism. Not to be saved because, but because we are saved. But ask a Roman Catholic, are you born again? Yes. I was born again when I was baptized. Well, what about mortal sins? Have you committed mortal sins? Yes. Well, what happens when you commit a mortal sin? Well, you fall out of grace. So the obvious question is, well, how do you get back into a state of grace? Well, says the devout Roman Catholic, as a result of the sacraments. Well, there are seven of them, so which one are you talking about? Well, first of all, penance. You've got to ask, well, how do you do that? Well, the response would be, you come and you have an act of, listen to this, you have an act of perfect contrition. To which you have to say, have you ever had a perfect anything? Come on, we're a fallen race. There's nothing about as perfect. So what else have you got up your sleeve? Well, the Eucharist, the Mass. So, I know I'm setting up a straw man here, but you get the, you get the point. So, our friend was baptized, and that meant that their original sin and their personal sins were dealt with, so therefore they are born again. We live in a fallen world. They inevitably commit sin, mortal sins. They fall out of grace. So you have to go back to the dispenser of grace, namely the church, that holds the containers, that holds the containers, holds in its containers their life and their destiny. And that despite the fact that you read in the Bible that God has made one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So despite what the Bible says, our friend goes to church so that the church can dispense to him penance, so that can dispense to him Eucharist, so that by means of the sacrifice and the reenactment of the death of Christ on Calvary, then they can get back into a state of grace again. That's why when you read about, you read in their catechism, it says, question, why should you take the Mass? Answer, when should you take the Mass? That's the question. Answer, every single day is desirable and twice a day in holy times. Now, that's logical. It's logical because, you know, the church is dispensing that which will get you into heaven. And so you keep going back to that. And it doesn't matter if it's in Latin, Swahili, or Russian. All that matters is that you take what's dispensed. And so you had Mass for talk's sake on Monday morning. But before you went to work, you were, yeah, yeah, it was before you went to work. You're driving to work, somebody cuts in front of you in a car, and you make a rude gesture out of your car window. 
Now, what do you do with that? Well, you either head back to the 12 o'clock mass or maybe pull over to the side of the road and you try for perfect contrition. Now, I'm not trying to make light of this. But there is no peace, there is no assurance within that system because you're always, always wondering, am I doing enough? To work righteousness also, am I doing enough? So don't ever let anybody ever tell you or ever suggest to you that baptism is baptism. And whatever it means, it it means. And don't be getting too head up about it. Don't be unduly worried about it. Because after all, it's really no big issue. (laughs) Yes, it is, beloved. It is a big issue. Because not everything on four legs is a horse. Okay, so you've got the Presbyterian view, speaking of baptism, signifying something. You have the Roman Catholic view, which speaks of it as conveying grace. And the Anglican view, which tries to bounce somewhere in between. Okay, what is the biblical position? Well, it's what we seek to teach here. We seek to teach the Bible. We want to stand upon the Bible. And we teach that baptism, as with the Lord's Supper, is a sign which is secondary It's outward and it's visible. It points to the reality of conversion, which is primary. Conversion is primary. And it is uh, inward and invisible. So Jesus gives to his apostles this command before he uh, ascends. He says, you go out into uh, the world, you uh, baptize them, go to all nations, and you make sure that uh, you're preaching this gospel, urging people to repent. And when people repent, baptize them. And then you get into Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, and you find Peter immediately on the streets of Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit falls upon them, and he is doing that very thing. He is preaching the gospel. And as a result of the gospel being preached about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, the people are cut to their heart and they respond by saying, what shall we do? Now, Peter's response was, well, you need to do two things. One, in terms of your own heart response, you need to repent. And you need to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And secondly, in terms of your public profession, you need to be baptized. And it's that response of the heart in repentance and faith that symbolizes and is identified in baptism. Now here are four words to summarize what we have taught consistently in this place over the years. Number one, baptism is a confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, day of Jerusalem, Peter's preaching, folks are convicted of their sin, 
And Levi and Miriam get baptized on the day of Pentecost. And their friends are in Jerusalem and they're saying, what on earth has happened to Levi and Miriam? In fact, they're not alone. Because actually there seems to be thousands following them. And they're being baptized. And curiosity draws them. And they say, what's that they're saying? You know, what is it that they're doing? What is it that they're saying? And someone says, you know, they're not saying too much. All they're saying is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they're being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Roman soldiers, they're miffed. Because their normal greeting was Caesar is Lord, not Jesus is Lord. And the Jewish authorities, the Jewish leaders, they're miffed. Because they believed in monotheism. And there was absolutely no way under heaven. There was no possibility that this Galilean carpenter, who had been crucified six weeks before, was Adonai. There is no way he is Lord. There is no way that he is Messiah. There's no way on this earth that he is Jehovah, that he is Christ. And so you see what I'm saying, friends? It cost these believers in Jerusalem. And that day of Pentecost and subsequent days to say that Jesus Christ was Lord. And I confess my faith in him. In baptism. First word. Confession. Secondly. Baptism is communion with Christ. In that in Romans 6, the passage we read earlier, we are identified, we commune with Christ, we fellowship with Christ in his death and also in his resurrection. In baptism, as we do, you know, this baptistry next Lord's Day will be open, God willing, and there will be that pool in front of us. And when Reuben goes through the waters of baptism, we will be showing the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's symbolized. We'll be showing the death and resurrection of Reuben. That's what's symbolized. As Christ died, he died. As Christ rose from the dead, he rises from the dead. Is that what Romans 6 reminds us of? Biblically, there is only one mode, one method, one way of baptism. That is by immersion. That's why we dip people onto the water, plunge people onto the water. Because it says something, it pictures something. And there is supposed to be a violence about it because the the death of the Lord Jesus Christ was a violent death, and it's picturing that violent death. My rhythm we won't be violent with you next week. You know, we won't take you by the scruff of the neck and throw you under there. But, but that's what's pictured. The violent death of the Savior. And so when someone is being baptized they are communing with Christ they are fellowshipping with Christ they are identifying 
with Christ and also his people who have also gone through the waters of baptism. And by picturing, you know, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in that act, we are clearly showing that we are buried with him in baptism and raised with him to newness of life. Now, sprinkling does not picture that. Only baptism by immersion pictures that. You know, there, there's a story that's uh, told, came out of Yorkshire, of a proud, arrogant businessman that everybody knew. He was master of his own destiny, champion of his own decisions. He was a self-made man, and his house, his car, and everything about him testified to it. He came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repented of his sin. He asked to be baptized, and on the day of his baptism... He turned up the little chapel in his very expensive three-piece suit. Pastor pulled him aside and said, you know, don't be wearing your three-piece suit going into the baptismal pool. You'll, you'll ruin it. You know, we have baptismal robes. We'll give you one of the robes, go in and change, and uh, it'll protect your suit. The businessman replied, that's exactly what I want to wear in the water, and that's exactly why I want to wear it, because my three-piece suit is as much a symbol of my arrogance and my pride and my own self-endeavors and everything that I am that I want to be baptized in it and ruin it. And so he's baptized in his three-piece suit, and he's buried the old man, and he comes up out of the waters of baptism and he's raised, as it's pictured, a new man in Christ. As a result of the water? Of course not. Next week, I think the water will be supplied by United Utilities. Probably come from the lakes. And so it's ordinary water. There's nothing special about it. But the candidate for baptism will be showing the transformation in his life by the grace of God in Christ, to which, to which the water points as he goes on there. Confession, communion, consecration. I would just basically covered that. The three-piece suit says it all. Fourth one, consummation. Consummated in the same way as when we take communion. We look forward to a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will come again and we will no longer drink of this wine or take this bread the way we do. We look back to Calvary. We're looking forward to he comes again. The same way in baptism, consummation. We're looking forward to a resurrection. A glorious new body. Those who have gone on before us, their bodies are laid in the grave. And their souls are in heaven. They're going to be reunited again in that great consummation, day of consummation of all things. And we'll be ever with the Lord in that marriage supper of the Lamb in glory. It's all pictured in baptism. Now let me ask you a few questions and then we're through. Here's a $64,000 question. Where do you fit into all of this? Where do you fit into all of this? Are you trusting? 
Have you been trusting in an outward physical sign without any experience of an inward spiritual change in your life? You're trusting in religion instead of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand that if you take the Bible, and you must take your Bible, you know, just don't take it, you know, that the pastor's saying it, so it must be right. Now, you, you take your Bible, and you read it, and you will see that salvation is pictured, pictured in the ordinances. It's not performed by the ordinances. Only Jesus Christ can save. It's not the water of baptism nor the cup of communion that saves. Only Christ saves. And one of the reasons I would guess for the ineffectiveness and weakness of the church of Jesus Christ in our day is on account of the confusion that surrounds these issues. This year marks the 80th anniversary of the D-Day landings. And there are probably a few of those old service personnel left, probably in their late 90s, some of them in their early 100s. But there will be parades, and there will be commemorations. And every member of the armed services, retired or not, will take every opportunity to wear, and justifiably so, to wear the uniform. Very strange if they didn't. Who would enlist in the army, the navy, the air force, and not want to wear the uniform? Who would go through all of the agony of basic training and then when it comes to the passing out parade, say to the commanding officer, I'm not going to take the uniform. I want to be a soldier. No uniform. I love being a soldier. No uniform. Thanks for getting me through all of this basic training, but no uniform. And maybe you're listening to me right now, and that's exactly what you're saying to the commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want Christianity. I'm born again, but I want Christianity light. Not what that church say. Well, this church only says what the Bible says. We don't want to say anything other than that the Bible says. And so you're going to say to your commander-in-chief, I want Christianity light, but forget the uniform. You know, forget the baptism. Forget your command to tell me to be in fellowship, membership, you use whatever term you want, in fellowship with this local body of faith. I want the Christianity, but not the uniform. Come on. Is that what you're saying to Jesus? Here are two other questions. One, have you come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ rather than relying on, a, relying on any sacraments? Are you born again? If you've been born again, there's baptismal service here next Sunday, and you've never been baptized, well, why not be baptized? On the baptistry will be open. Talk to me about it afterwards. Having come to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the second question. Are you prepared to indicate your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Not only by confessing him in baptism, but just doing what he tells you to do in his word. My beloved, thank you for your patience over these past few weeks. Baptismal service next week, we'll get back to a good gospel message. And uh, yeah, you can bring friends along, neighbors along. Sometimes people's curiosity is uh, aroused when they hear baptism, what's that? Come along and see. And uh, I say thank you for your patience. I know it's been heavy going, particularly last week. But you, you must be like, as I often say, you must be like the people in Berea in relationship to all of this. In Acts chapter 17, it says that the Bereans were more noble than the folks in Thessalonica because after Paul preached, they went back and they studied the scriptures to see whether this apostle, what he was saying, was actually in the Bible. And that's what we're supposed to do. Go to the Bible and see if what you're hearing is actually there. That's the mandate that I give you. Beloved, go read your Bibles and see if these things are so. And on the strength of that, what you find in your Bible, you go forward accordingly.